0: It's time for what has
1: become, I guess, kind of our morning science segment. I mean, really, what better way to start the day than learning something kind of cool and groundbreaking, right? So this morning, we have for you the subject of gravity. Now, it's a team of researchers that propose using seismic motions in the Earth to test for types of gravity. So kind of read about this and thought, well, as always, I need someone to explain this to me, the significance of it. So we're joined now by Dr. Paul Sutter, who's a research professor of astrophysics at Stony Brook University's Institute for Advanced Computational Science. Good morning, Dr. Sutter.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having me on.
1: Well, thank you for being here. So can you explain to me what is modified gravity and why is it so important?
2: Right. So the current reigning champion for our understanding of gravity is Albert Einstein himself in his theory of general relativity he developed this theory in the early 20th century and in this theory it's it's a radical restructuring of our understanding of gravity it tells us that space-time is like a fabric and that the presence of mass and energy can bend and warp this fabric and then our experience of gravity is us moving through the bends and warps in space-time itself and despite a hundred years of trying to prove Einstein wrong. We have not. General relativity has survived every single experimental test we have ever thrown at it. But we know that general relativity is incomplete we know that this is not the final theory of gravity general relativity breaks down in certain places like the centers of black holes or the beginning of the universe there are places where we know general relativity itself does not tell us how gravity behaves so we are trying to find a new theory of gravity to replace general relativity. But general relativity keeps passing all observational tests, so it's kind of hard to to figure out what's going on.
1: (laughs) So are we looking for something that would encompass general relativity within a new theory?
2: Exactly. Just like general relativity encompasses the old Newtonian version of gravity uh, within it, when you take a general relativity and all the complicated equations in that theory and you reduce it down to the limit of, of weak gravity, like on the surface of the Earth, you get Newton's equations out of it anyway. So we are trying to find a modified version of gravity that includes everything that general relativity includes plus some extra stuff.
1: Okay, so what is this new research that is being done, Dr. Sutter, that uses seismic motions in the Earth? How is this being used to test this?
2: Right, so when we go to test general relativity, we usually go to extreme places in the universe, like black holes colliding or stars exploding or the earliest moments in the Big Bang. Because this is where gravity is really extreme and really strong and really st- uh, stress tests the theory. But Obviously, uh, those are kind of hard to access. We can't just go right up next to a black hole and poke around. Uh, We can't go back in time 13 billion years. And so the testing general relativity in this way is very difficult. Uh, This team of researchers found, however, that there is another way to test general relativity that's a little bit closer to home. And that's through using seismic waves in the body of the Earth. We know a lot about the Earth. We know a lot about its composition, its mass, the way it rotates. And we know about how waves, earthquake waves, travel through the mantle and core and crust of the Earth. And it turns out, they've discovered in this study, that different theories of gravity, uh, general relativity extensions or modifications to general relativity, Uh, produce different predictions for how seismic waves will travel through the Earth itself. So, so far, no one has employed this test because this is a brand new idea. Uh, But it's good to have these ideas out there because we are looking for any crack in the theory at all so that we can make some sort of advancement.
1: Are we, do you think, making advancements?
2: We are, you know, every time we test general relativity, we learn something new. Even when we just confirm that Albert Einstein was right all along, that is still something. Because every time we test general relativity, we rule out new ideas. If I came up with some brand new theory of relativity, uh, of, of how gravity works, and then we go out and test it, and then it turns out general relativity is the best explanation for that data, well, then I can just cross that off the list and move on to generating a new idea. So there's no such thing as a negative result in science because you're always learning something.
1: Hmm. This kind of reminds me of the movie Interstellar.
2: Yes, except the answer is not love, it turns out. <laughs> Uh, No, I remember the answer being
1: gravity. I remember the answer. (laughs) I remember gravity being very important in that movie.
2: Exactly. And and we believe that a better understanding of gravity... Uh, will help us understand things like the nature of time and the beginnings of the universe. Uh, But right now, our only tool is general relativity. It's not giving us the answers we want. So we're trying to develop a new tool. But so far, all of our new tools are failing.
1: Dr. Sutter, is it hard to do that sometimes when you talk about a theory that's been around and is as durable as that one is? Is it hard because it becomes just such accepted uh, belief?
2: The okay. Well, in science, all of our beliefs are conditioned on the evidence. We believe in general relativity because it works. And the moment it stops working, we're going to stop believing in it. And so that doesn't make it hard. That makes it liberating. We're not bound to the past. We don't have to listen to Albert Einstein forever. Oh, we get to develop our own ideas. It turns out Einstein was kind of smart and a little bit too good at what he did because we can't figure out a way past his original idea but that's the joy that's the beauty we get to keep exploring and discovering new things
1: so that sounds like a lot of work is being done on that so is this a new way of looking at it then by using these uh, seismic kind of waves this part of the earth's core
2: Absolutely. Uh, people have been trying to dethrone general relativity, like I said, for over a century, coming up with all sorts of crazy tests and ideas. This is the first time someone has thought of using the interior of the Earth itself as a test of general relativity. And you never know what you're going to find.
1: You write so much about space. You write, like, what fascinates you about this? Oh,
2: I am in love with space, just the scale, the beauty, the wonder, the mystery. There's so many mysteries out there. I love going out on a dark clear night, looking out on the stars and just getting lost in the vastness and and then and then the next day I get to go into my office in front of my chalkboard or my computer and I get to grapple with it. I get to wrestle with it. I get to try to answer it. So it doesn't just exist as some unsolvable mystery, the universe is something that we can understand, we can know, and that itself is is powerful.
1: You know, Dr. Sutter, I think you're wrong. Sounds to me like the answer is love. You just said it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Listen, thanks so much for your time this morning.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me on.
1: Appreciate that. Dr. Paul Sutter is a research professor of astrophysics at Stony Brook University's Institute for Advanced Computational Science. He has authored books, uh, he has a podcast, he has hosted a variety of science shows. Uh, his podcast, by the way, is called Ask a Spaceman, and it's got something like 7 million downloads on that. So you can also check him out online if you would like. And I thank him for explaining to us uh, the issues around modified gravity.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Big day in the U.S. today with all eyes on a courtroom in Delaware where one of the most popular news outlets in the country is pretty much going on trial. It's Dominion Voting Systems versus Fox News. And Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, is with us.
3: Reggie, what's it like down there with us? well i mean look outside of the courthouse it is packed with media inside of the courthouse it is packed with uh an expectation that something is going to happen that is ultimately going to alter the way that this kind of case moves forward in the future whether or not it protects a media outlet from being able to say what it wants or it prevents a media outlet from being able to spew lies okay
1: so let's break it down for people what is this actually all about here
3: So essentially, Fox News uh, has been taken to trial uh, by Dominion uh, over what Dominion claims are defamatory statements against its intellectual properties, and that would be voting machines that were used in 2020 that people within the Trump orbit and people who were close to Fox News uh, had said were a part of this big scheme to steal the election and ultimately change the votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Dominion says, look, none of that is true. Our machines worked appropriately, uh, and the way that you have defamed us over and over on TV has been costly for us. It will cost us money in the future. And it all stems from Fox News airing repeated comments over and over again that the election was rigged, saying that these systems were linked to South American, you know, leaders that are no longer alive and satellites in space and Italians, uh, none of which is true. And Dominion is now saying, look, we want $1.6 billion in compensation.
1: Okay, and now there's a lot of anticipation about this, just because I think of what all the leaks we had, right, leading up to this?
3: Yeah, and and a lot of those leaks are what is going to be presented in this trial if the trial moves forward, if we don't wind up with a settlement in the next couple of hours here. Uh, And some of those leaks have to do with the fact that these hosts on Fox News, like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Maria Baratiromo, off the line, uh, not in front of a camera, were actually saying, yeah, we know that a lot of this stuff isn't true, we're not really fans of Donald Trump, yet then went on camera and repeated the, the kind of false claims about an election lie and the bogus uh, accusations surrounding um, Dominion. So now what the court is going to have to do, what the what the lawyers are going to do, and what the jury is have to going to hear and figure out is whether or not Fox made these claims with actual malice. Some legal experts say that's going to be a difficult road for Dominion to try and climb because it's difficult to prove that, but if they can prove that, this could be a significant moment in Fox News history.
1: Okay, and they tried to settle apparently at the last minute. Didn't really work out?
3: Well, I mean, so we don't know if they tried to settle. Settlement conversations apparently were taking place, and we know that because the Wall Street Journal, owned by Fox, was the first to report that. Uh, so there is a possibility that something could happen before opening arguments take place within a couple of hours, or whether they walk into a courtroom and say a settlement has been agreed to. It would be unclear what kind of settlement that is, whether, you know, Dominion would want money and maybe some kind of editorial mea culpa. On Fox News, which could drive away Fox News viewers. It's not sure Fox is going to want to follow along with that. So this is going to have, again, wide-ranging implications for whoever the victor is.
1: And also, I should note here that Fox News did apologize to the judge in this case, right? Where is it?
3: Yeah, because there was some back and forth here between the the lawyers for Fox and the judge and the lawyers at one point were saying something to the judge along the lines of, well, that's neither here nor there. And the judge was saying, well, look, if I'm saying something is true, it's here and it is not here or there. Uh, so Fox has already found itself in a bit of hot water with this judge. It's also worth pointing out, too, that the jury is being told there are certain things that they're not allowed to pay attention to. And that is some of the comments made by Fox News about the false claims, because the judge says it's crystal clear those claims were bogus. So Fox won't be able to use any of that uh, when they're trying to sway the jury.
1: I can see why everybody's watching this. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News on the trial, Dominion uh, Voting Systems versus Fox News, which gets underway this morning. And, of course, I think we'll also be keeping an eye on that one.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, as part of our Future of Work series today, we're going to be talking about using Indigenous education to help get more people into the workforce. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let's find out. Joining us now is Corey Wilson, Executive Director of Indigenous Initiatives and Partnerships at BCIT. Corey, thanks for being with us. Yes, good morning. What does it mean to build indigeneity into education?
0: I think it means to recognize and respect the, you know, the strong cultures that Indigenous people have, Indigenous ways of knowing and being and bringing it into the curriculum. It's more than just adding it to the curriculum. It's also uh, bringing it into programs, into services, into policies, into how we govern. It's about uh, just understanding and recognizing that there are different ways to do things and ways that can benefit everybody if everybody has an opportunity to learn and to be exposed um, we've done that in many of our programs and courses at BCIT, and, and it leads to uh, you know a different type of education that is one that's more fulsome, more comprehensive, and more respectful of uh, the traditional people and the people of this land.
1: What kind of a difference do you think it makes in terms of getting more people into the program and, and helping people find employment?
0: Well, I think the reality is, is if you're going to do any, doesn't matter what kind of job you're doing in British Columbia, you have to have an understanding and a respect for Indigenous people and our place in space and our history as well as our contemporary reality. You know, in light of DRIPA, in light of UNDRIP, in light of the various other pieces of legislation, uh, no matter what you do, you're going to come across Indigenous people and any company that has a company or organization that has an awareness of Indigenous people um, and our ways of being uh, and shows that respect. Just much like EDI, you've got to have that understanding and, and people are looking for. Uh, more fulsome understanding and and getting more competencies than than what you traditionally would get.
1: Has it been challenging, Corey, to kind of work those things into the curriculum? <laughs> um,
0: <clears throat> well, I think with anything that's new and different, it's been it's challenging. But you know, certainly, I'm pretty proud of the work we've done at BCIT. We have an Indigenous vision that has been embraced across all schools and all departments and in various levels in terms of how far along they are. But everybody has uh, work is working towards. Uh, creating their own reconciliation action plan. And, and, you know, in some cases, it's just uh, having them complete our BCIT Indigenous awareness modules that are open source, that anybody can do. Some uh, schools, such as the School of Health, have completely embraced this and assigned people to indigenize their curriculum. So we have the wide spectrum at BCIT, our services are, are you know, they're embracing Indigenous ways of knowing and being and wellness. And it's very... so. It's very different across each school and department, but um, often what it you know it takes. Some people may not understand, and, and I, we operate on the principle when people know better, they do better. So we engage in those conversations and help everybody understand that you know BCIT is stronger, British Columbia is stronger if all voices are heard and everybody is included.
1: Right. Do you view this as a blueprint then? Like I know it's being used right now, sort of in the school of, in science and nursing program. Where else could yeah. it be used?
0: Oh, it's used it's used across our campus. It's used in, in the trades. We have trade discovery programs that deal with indigenous that have indigenous people and content. We have it in our stream restoration program, our natural resource program. So we're bringing and bringing indigenous content and knowledge, and it's not just the sorry, it's not just the content, but bringing in elders and bringing in building relationships with with communities and becoming part of those communities and be, you know building those authentic relationships to ensure that the learning is equal and equitable across the uh, spectrum, and as well as in terms of all all sources of knowledge are respected. So it's it's across. BCIT across all schools and all departments.
1: And what do you think it does then to help Indigenous people kind of find a pathway in those careers?
0: Um, Well, first off, it helps people realize that BCIT is a place that students can come to and be respected and be included. We have a gathering place. We have uh, staff that helps support students. We have uh, our student services at BCIT have have done Indigenous awareness, are aware of the issues and challenges that Indigenous people face. So they all see themselves reflected. We have Indigenous employees. We have Indigenous faculty members. You know, it helps them realize that this is a place that they can attend, as well as we work really hard to ensure that when they leave BCIT, they're leaving not only with an exceptional degree and competencies, but they're leaving with that kind of extra bit, an understanding of not only themselves and their history, um, and then they can go on and, and be really effective employees for organizations and companies across the province.
1: That's so interesting. Corey, thank you for your time. Yes, you're welcome. That's Corey Wilson. Uh, Corey is the executive director of Indigenous Initiatives and Partnerships at BCIT. This is Mornings with Simi. Stop. Can I just say it's snowing over on Vancouver Island, not here, but I've been getting pictures from people, Comox, elsewhere, uh, and thank you for the picture, Ken from Campbell River. It, it it is snow. There's snow on the ground there. I know you're thinking, what at this time, <laughs> April 18th. It is true, so if you're seeing some crazy weather, let me know, simi at cknw.com. In the meantime, we're going to talk about the YWCA. They've been granted about $2.4 million, and the goal here is to help them expand something called the AXIS program. So what does this do, and what kind of a difference could it make? Well, joining us now is Sheila Malcolmson, BC's Minister of Social Development and Poverty. Thank you for joining us this morning.
4: Thank you so much for the invitation, Cindy.
1: Now, what is it like for this program? What does this program do exactly?
4: YWCA is such a fantastic, really grassroots organization, so dedicated to helping women in so many ways. This particular program, though, they started up just in the last couple of years, and they managed to fund it themselves. We're now coming on as a funder that they would connect with women who are fleeing gender-based violence, often intimate partner violence. Uh, and kind of pull them out of that dark place, give them lots of other supports, but particularly what we were talking about yesterday, is get them connected with work. Sometimes women who've been really controlled by partner or family member might not even have access to something as simple as a bank account, let alone you know know how to put a resume together and get a job interview. And especially for women who are from other countries, who are now Canadian and are dealing in other languages, so important to be able to connect them with support in their own language, their first language, help them gain the skills that they need, that they can be secure and free and rebuild their lives for themselves and for their families.
1: So is this like a a one-stop shop for them? Like if they come for help, this is where they will find everything?
4: Yeah, I mean, the Y does so much good work um, on ending gender-based violence, on providing childcare and housing and counselling. So they really do have a very wide breadth of work. But it could also be that other organizations that are supporting women, um, immigrant women, refugee women, women fleeing gender-based violence, they could refer them into this program as well. Um, And so it's basically 12 weeks that a woman who wants to enter the job market, but has been facing barriers um, and rebuilding their lives after having been the victim of domestic violence, that they get this one-on-one counselling in their own language. Um, We even heard stories of one woman on her way to a job interview had her counsellor on a Zoom call with her in the taxi giving her coaching right up to the minute that she was going in for her job interview. And then we heard from women who now have supervisory positions. like They really did very well with that little extra Boost of help that YWCA was able to do and they'll be able to greatly expand that with this new 2.4 million dollars worth funding
1: and so where is this money going to go towards is it just now taking kind of over the program to help them out with it
4: it's doing a couple of things um, it's adding more languages in because as women have come forward then we've you know it really is important to speak with them in their first language and so and it's an expansion of the number of languages but most important, it's bringing a greater Vancouver program province-wide. And so women anywhere in British Columbia will be able to get connected with this support and in a way that, you know, can help them get freedom and financial security and really land on their feet again.
1: Is it challenging to plug employers into this program, you know, to ask them to kind of sometimes perhaps roll the dice on this, be patient with uh, people who might need a little extra help? You know... That
4: is true in a lot of areas. And in my role as social development and poverty reduction minister, I'm really so grateful for a whole bunch of employers that do work on that basis. They really want to hire people with different abilities and they, you know, have kind of put themselves forward as partners. We do a lot of that kind of work. In this particular program, though, you know, the women um, really, it's more about the counselling, connecting them to get ready for that job interview and do a bit of the job search and stuff. Um, but it's, you know, this program is really about the women getting the direct language support, the counseling that they need, um, and being able to take that next step. Like we heard this one story from a woman named um, Amon Beer, who came to Canada just a year ago, um, relocated here to escape domestic abuse. Um, she got counseling in Punjabi. She was saying that. She was really quite unsure about her work experience and didn't really know about her abilities. Confidence was very low. Um, She got the counseling to this program, a laptop, so she could kind of get some practice and get up to speed. She's now in an advisory position, like she's doing very well with an accounting firm. So she just needed that little extra push, and she's on her way.
1: You mentioned this is now going province-wide. So was that something that you were able to identify that, okay, well, this works here. We clearly need this elsewhere.
4: 100%. I mean, this is something that Premier Eby just is saying to all of us as ministers and MLAs. We need to get a lot of work on the ground fast in a way that people can really feel and see the difference in their lives. And so finding those programs that are proven, developed by really credible grassroots groups like YWCA, and then what is scalable? What can we connect with other communities and, and talk with other communities and other other groups about, you know, how they might modify it to make it work for them. Of course, you know, what works in Vancouver doesn't necessarily work in the north, but it's a good starting place. And YWCA is a perfect partner for that.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning
4: really appreciate the conversation Simi. Have a good day.
1: You too. That's Sheila Malcolmson who's BC's Minister of Social Development and Poverty Reduction talking about support coming to the YWCA province-wide which I think is pretty significant uh, to help expand their access program. They provide employment services and supports uh, for women who have experienced violence, abuse or trauma.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: it's a story that sounds all too familiar, but it's not happening here, well, at least not this time, it's New York City we're talking about. Two men have been arrested as part of a U.S. Justice Department investigation, and they are accused of helping to establish secret police stations in New York for the Chinese government. This isn't the first time we've heard this, is it? And in fact, there have been allegations that this is also happening right here in our city. So what do we know about this case so far? Why is it so significant? Well, joining us is Michelle Junokatsuya, who's the former chief of Asia Pacific at CESIS and the author of Nest of Spies. Michelle, thanks for being back with us.
5: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: What did you think when you heard about this story?
5: Well, I think it's another peak of the iceberg that we have not fully discovered as we speak. Uh, What we need to understand is is why the Chinese government is trying to establish those sort of confidential or, 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 or undercover organizations within the community. Well, basically, they're trying to monitor, to intimidate, to bully the entire community by establishing with the collaboration, the conscious collaborations of certain uh, uh, individual uh, uh, collaborators, basically uh, they're trying to establish a presence and that presence is strong enough and sufficient enough to say to people, we are present. Your current government is not even capable to protect you. And if something is said or done without our uh, uh, agreement, there will be consequences, consequences that can go directly against you, can go against your family, can go against your relatives back in China.
1: How long do we think this has been going on for?
5: Well, there's an organization in in Spain who has been uh, uh, watching these kind of development. And and we think it's been going on for at least the last five years. Uh, and it's 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 interesting how it started. Basically, it started because of France. <laughs> In France, there was a lot of uh, Chinese tourists that apparently were uh, attacked or subject to little criminal activities, but there were no translators or enough people to help. So China offered to send some real police officer, Chinese police officer that would be in France and assist the local authority with the tourists who got mugged or or, or robbed or something like this. But eventually they realized, hey, you know what? Under the pretext that we are helping our uh, co-citizens traveling, we will establish those, those sort of police stations. And they went on like this to uh, create in a clandestine way uh, in more than 50 countries, uh, 150 so far, and the number keeps going, um, clandestine position like this. But again, all the time with the same purpose, which is to intimidate the uh, community.
1: Okay, and so when you were at CISIS, was there evidence of this happening? Had you heard about this before?
5: No, no. When uh, I was at CISIS, we never heard of this. Uh, like I said, that would be in the last five years.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so now we seem to hear about it quite a bit. So we know the RCMP is investigating this in Canada, right?
5: Correct. Uh, even went as far as also uh, uh, discovering that some people are even using cars where they've put uh, sort of and we're not really sure if it's a sticker or, 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 or magnetized uh, logo, but uh, uh, police that the sort of mimic to be uh, looking like a police car and going around. So we've got here really sort of uh, 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 an attempt to intimidate the community to show a presence and and again, all to quiet the uh dissidents, the the, the, the the critiques, uh to make sure that they control the message because they don't want uh the, a negative uh image to come out of the uh community and that for that reason right. they are capable to uh Sort of uh, intimidate people.
2: that So, way.
1: Michelle, then, how much of a difference does it make that this kind of story, these kinds of stories, are now out there? That we know this happened in the U.S. Now, there seem to be cracking down. That it is under investigation here. Doesn't that? Wouldn't that give this program from the Chinese government some pause and go, "Geez, maybe we should rethink this."
5: Well, probably it will. Probably it will. But the concept of having a, a presence will remain because this. Has been going on for a long period of time, maybe co- the, not the idea of having a police station, a clandestine police station has not been very very long, but to have a presence within the community has been going on for decades. matter of fact there 's not a single Chinese association in Canada that is uh, uh, not oppo- that is opposing uh, not opposing the, the the country uh china i mean that is not infiltrated directed and probably controlled by the United Front Work Department, which is one of the five intelligence organizations in China controlling uh, 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 or, or operating outside of the country. So we've got a serious problem, and in Canada in particular, what we call foreign interference has been going on for a long, long, long period of time. It's only this year, with in parts, the revelation that uh, came out from the Globe and Mail and Global News, that we finally pay attention to what's going on, and what we're seeing is that many elected officials at all levels municipal, provincial, and federal uh, many uh, workers in the uh, uh, writings of many of these the, 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 this, the places where we have a great concentration of Chinese uh, immigrant or Chinese descent. Uh, citizens uh, are affected by activities coming from the consulate, coming from the embassy, and that is a serious, serious danger to our democracy and our system.
1: So when Canadian authorities then see what's happening in the U.S., that they're, they're very high profile, right, that they had this press conference yesterday, they talked about this, is that an indication to them that, okay, we need to go hard after this? Like, Is there a tit for tat there? Do they think, okay, we need to do this as well?
5: Well, we know that already the RCMP has been uh, uh, given charge of the the file, and we know that they are investigating and they are trying to do their best. One of the challenges that we are currently facing is the Canadian law are not necessarily well equipped to help us fixing the problem of foreign interference. Uh, If we are catching some people who are trying to uh, 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 impersonify a police officer that is a criminal offense. If we are seeing some people that are capable to do, to, to, to arrest for harassment or, or bullying, that's possible. But the criminal code has not really been carved for that, that, that purpose. And one of the challenges that we currently have is the lack of Tools that the law can use. That's why, for example, in Australia, in 2017-2018, they adopted a law over there, which is the Foreign Interference Law, that allows the the the, the police to have distinct evidence or or element of the law where they can investigate, eventually find evidence, bring it to court, and prove out uh, without any reasonable doubt. That there is an offence that was committed, and that's one of the problems that we currently have. Unfortunately, what we are watching in uh, in Ottawa as we speak, it's more sort of a tug of war of partisanship, and we're not moving fast enough, at least not according to some of the experts, to try to give the uh, uh, tools for the authority to be able to stop this foreign interference. That has been going on for decades because what we know is for the last 30 years, every single prime minister has been compromised. Every single close circle of the prime ministers have been infiltrated. Every prime minister's had been warned, but they, 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 they intentionally did not look at it and did not act because for, of partisanship or personal interest. And at the end of the day, all federal government, provincial government, and municipal government have been part of the problem rather than be part of the solutions. So we need a drastic uh, uh, action here, probably to create an organization that will be totally independent of CSIS, totally independent of the RCMP, to investigate and being capable to charge people to uh, uh, do and, and do warrant. and and eventually sort of report directly to the House of Commons and being uh, even selected, uh, the director in charge, uh, by the House of Commons. Because the lack of transparency has dominated through the last three decades, and it's been a negative effect on us.
1: Michelle, thank you so much for your time this morning.
5: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Th- that is Michelle Junoketsu, a former chief of Asia Pacific at CSIS and author of Nest of Spies. Talking about the story out of the United States certainly affects us, though. The Justice Department in the U.S. has prioritized prosecutions of transnational repression. That's what they call it. That's where foreign governments work to identify, intimidate and silence dissidents in the U.S. And clearly we're saying, well, why is that not also happening here? From on to way in, send at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Is our transit system safe? So many people are asking that question these days after hearing about violent incidents on SkyTrain, on the bus, and it's led to questions about how we are policing the system. Transit police say they have increased patrols, but let's find out more about how this situation is being dealt with. Chief Officer Dave Jones is with us now with the Metro Vancouver Transit Police. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Has your department noticed an increase in violent incidents on places like buses and SkyTrain?
6: Well, oh, I would say yes. With the recent rash of what we noted uh, in terms of their uh, several incidents uh, that were spread out, um, they seem to have, we've noticed that uptake, but we've seen it as a bit of an anomaly occurring as opposed to the way we were trending for the last while.
1: Uh, How were we trending, would you say, over the
6: last while? Well, well, trending, I would say, for the last couple of years as we came out of COVID was fairly, I would say, flat. And just in terms of, you know, our calls for service and the types of calls we were receiving and incidents that were happening. And part of that is just tracking it along with, you know, our calls anecdotally through statistics. But when you get a major, you know, say rash or influx of, of incidents that are serious, it then has that perceptional change, right? And we have to look at that because perception is a reality as well too, right? How people are going to view the system, how people are going to feel within their communities, how people are going to feel, you know, if they're going to attend a certain location. So that is what we've noticed has had a real change.
1: Okay. So then how do you deal with that perception? What can the police do?
6: So a couple things that go with it. One is we have to provide that reassurance, right? So that reassurance may come. And one of the initial things is that higher visibility, that being out there, it's drawing attention from or taking resources from other areas and putting and putting the attention um, onto the um, areas that require it, if you want to say, where we can get out and be more visible with the public. At the same time, it takes a gives us that opportunity to emphasize um, things that the public can do, or that we can, that are in place, that they might not be aware of, the idea of how to report crimes, the idea of using the tech services, the idea of the emergency strips and the emergency programs that are in place for people who can, um, you know, report something anonymously or, or surreptitiously by pushing on something. You know, we tend to find that sometimes we think that people know about these um, devices or they know about these techniques for being able to do something without getting themselves fully involved. But we become aware that not everyone is aware of those, those um, types of options that they have. So an educational component also becomes uh, important to us.
1: Okay, so if someone uses one of those tools, if someone yes. calls for that help on a bus or if a bus driver calls for help on a bus, w- what happens from the police perspective at that point?
6: So from a police perspective, depending on which device is used in a way, and, and so I'll use, as you've said, the bus driver. The bus driver making a call would go to the bus communication center, the bus it's called TCOM. TCOM would then notify the police. Now, we evaluate the call and we look at resources that are available, whether it be ourselves or whether it be the jurisdictional police agency, who's quickest, who's, who's the closest there, depending on the nature of the incident. Now, what we also have, which is, which is unique within the transit world, is of course, We can have the bus driver stop moving the bus so it stays in a given location. We can have SkyTrain cars stop at a station so that we can ensure that the quickest unit, the quickest policing response is able to get there. So it's not a moving target in terms of of how it goes. That is is one of them. There are other... um, techniques or you wanna say other technological tools that are involved. Buses have GPS, SkyTrain cars are tracked within the communication center. So when something like that happens, It's a matter of getting the information and then we quickly will know the location of where it is happening and making sure we get the appropriate resources there.
1: Okay. And what what about random patrols as well? Because I know you know that it's about visibility, right? And people need to feel safe to see that, oh, okay, I have somebody that I can reach out to for help. What about that?
6: Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. That's when I talk about that reassurance uh, style of policing is making sure of it. Now, whether it be a police officer, whether it be transit security, station attendance, or the new program that has been uh, discussed here, the community safety officer program, people need to see somebody who is able to provide them that assistance so they can go to for assistance. And that is what we look at as well. And we try to then deploy, based on what we have for resources, we look at where are the most appropriate places. And we also want to work together. So when I mean that, we work together with our jurisdictional partners who who also provide that higher visibility patrols at times we also work with transit security so we're not both at the same location we look at um, where we're receiving calls for service where we're receiving concerns from the public and not even just the public you got to remember that we also have I'll call it a team of bus drivers and transit workers who are also able to feed us information even anecdotally as to what their observations are and where our resources should be placed or directed at this time.
1: Okay. So has that changed then in the last little while in terms of the calls you've been getting in terms of saying, okay, maybe we need to just patrol this area a little bit more?
6: Yeah, so you know what we do is, of course, when you're looking to provide reassurance, you are looking at areas, and I would say just because something happens in Area A doesn't mean people in Area B don't hear about it, aren't affected by it, but there are certain areas, much like you would say if a serious crime happened in even a quiet neighborhood, where you're going to go up and you're going to make sure that you are seen to be visible, you are seen to be giving information, you're approachable, you're able to... I want to say provide that reassurance to the public that the transit system, the neighbourhood, the area is safe, and being there available to answer those questions, much like coming on and speaking with you today.
1: Okay, so what would you then say to someone who feels unsafe on transit? What should they do?
6: I think what I would do is I, I would look at saying, I would say to them, you know, and, I, and again, I don't want to use stats as, as something because stats are, know can be conveyed in different ways here i would first of all reassure them that it is safe and i would point out to them that we like to use or i've used the term that says basically when you're on transit you're never alone in other words even if you're sitting at a bus stop on a, on a rural road waiting for the bus to come, you can live text somebody at the tra- within the transit police. So our texting service is one of the only ones in the area where it's monitored 24 hours a day and you are live texting with individuals. So you can text somebody if you have a concern. If you are on a bus, there's obviously bus drivers, there are other passengers. If you're at a SkyTrain station, there are station attendants, there are other employees, there are the police, there are transit security. you not alone, but making sure that you understand that there are people you can reach out to, there are others you can go to, whether it is a police officer, transit employees, station attendants are well identified through uh, uniforms and uh, that they wear or safety vests that they have on. And the other thing I'd be saying to them is, don't hesitate to report something when you see something happening before you think it escalates. If you think there's acts of aggression or you have concerns about anyone, and perhaps you may even have concerns about someone else's safety, one of the things we want people to do is to report things. Quite often we find or have viewed when we've seen incidents occur, people are quicker to pull out their cell phones and record things than they are to report it. We want them to make sure you report it first. Report it, don't record it, right? I mean, this becomes important for us. When you see something, it doesn't even have to involve yourself. Make sure that you feel confident in being able to to notify the police let us decide if it if it's something that is of real true concern or not I'd rather make the error of sending police to a matter and find out it was it wasn't something that we had to be concerned about than not attending
1: I think people need to hear that thank you so much for your time
6: you're welcome thank you Simi
1: this is mornings with Simi One of my favourite Tuesdays, because once a month on True Crime Tuesdays, we stop in and chat with Nancy Hicks, senior crime reporter for Global News and host of the very popular Crime Beat podcast. Good morning, Nancy.
7: Good morning. I always love it when I'm on your show, so thank you for having me.
1: We both obviously have kind of a bit of a passion for this topic, and I'm still so curious about this how do you How do you decide when something comes to you that this is going to make a great crime beat story?
7: Um, you know, I share the stories that I've covered over my career. Um, and so like it's hard to say exactly how I decide when. Usually, it lines up. like, for instance, I just ended up having a friend contact me and said that he had an investigator over for dinner and it was an investigator that I was trying to reconnect with from a case that's like from 1981. So like and then all of a sudden it lines up so um it's meant to be interesting how that works right
1: yeah. Like the one that we're talking about today tell me about this case because this one goes back to 1992. Yes and I hate to date myself but
7: um I was in high school when this happened and this one is especially close to me because the husband in this case is also from my hometown. I'm from a really small farming community in rural Alberta. And so the person who was the husband in this case was a few years older than me, obviously. Um, but I knew him. I knew his family. And so watching this unravel as a somebody in high school and then later... Once I became a journalist, I picked up covering this case Um, and then obviously uh, sharing the story now on the podcast. So um, I do have a connection to it. And and so it's been interesting going back and going through all the details, talking to the original investigators. Um, So obviously I didn't cover it right when it happened, but I did pick up covering it um, decades ago um, when I first became a journalist.
1: Okay, so back in 1992... There's Delene Hempel. What do we know about Delene? So in
7: 1992, Delene was in her mid-20s. She had just met uh, a fellow named Troy Hempel. Um, they met at his relative's wedding. So they, they connected and instantly hit it off. They got married very shortly after uh, they started dating. And, uh, you know, things were just looking up. They wanted They had dreams of opening a restaurant of their own. Um, And he was working a night shift as a baggage handler at the airport in Calgary. And so she needed some more experience before they would actually own. So she wanted to become a manager. So there was a job waiting for her, but it wasn't ready yet. So she took this interim job as a waitress at this bar called Confetti's Bar in Calgary. And this was her second shift. Her first shift, she had some issues. There was a patron giving her a hard time. Um, And then this was her second shift. And it was just a stopgap. Like this was just to fill in a few shifts before she could take this other role at a different business. So uh, on her way home that night, uh, she disappeared. And her husband, you know, called on his way home, they were going to meet at home kind of in the middle of the night, they were both working nights. And she didn't answer the phone, he got home, she wasn't there. And then he went looking for her. And that's kind of the starting point of this story. So.
1: And so what happened since then? Like, is it still a mystery?
7: Well,
4: you
1: have to listen to the podcast. Aw, Nancy, come on.
7: <laughs> <laughs> um, I take you through this, though. Um, you know, this started, you know, her going missing, the, the husband went looking for her, and I can tell you that he found her vehicle abandoned just a short distance away from her from their home. And so he called police, and that started this complete, investigation police investigated it was a true mystery as to what had happened and there was a lot of different theories they had to explore including looking at the husband of course which made this even more difficult he's a newlywed they'd only been married a few months his wife was missing and now he's being looked at uh, for a homicide potentially a homicide they didn't right. know because they couldn't find her it was truly um Well,
1: that that would be the first place police would look, right? Like, we've all watched enough shows to say, isn't that where police are going to look?
7: Yeah, and, you know, um, the husband hasn't really talked about this. He's a pretty quiet, shy fellow, and uh, he trusted me to share his story in this case. And, uh, you know, it's heartbreaking to learn how this has impacted him, how, what happened. Like, I can give you an example. You know, this was very high profile, so you know, police are looking at him. She hasn't been found uh, months go by and, you know, he's at the grocery store, you know, it was and people ahead of him in line are seeing the front page of a paper and said, Oh yeah. Who do you think it was? And they're like, Oh yeah, definitely the husband and oh. unbeknownst to them, he's right behind them wearing a hat and, you know, sunglasses, you know, it was really, really difficult. And he really um, opened up and uh, shared his story and it's, it's really, really difficult for him. So, Um, and this is really a difficult time for the family and Deline's family, because this is one of the, the anniversaries, this month is one of the anniversaries, which you'll come to learn as you listen to the podcast as well.
1: Okay. So first episode out today, you've got another part two coming out in a couple of weeks, right?
7: Yes. Part two. So this is a two-parter. Um, and since we last chatted, there was another episode that I released as well, Um, It's called Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. Definitely give it a listen if you have time. It's about a young Métis woman who was found dead in her home. Um, Her death was deemed a homicide, but no charges were ever laid. So decades go by. This this one is
1: crazy. This one, so as you just pointed out, young Métis woman found dead in her home, but where were her three kids?
7: They were locked inside of two bedrooms and a closet. Like, it's so... Like it was just horrible circumstances, um, yeah, and it was a really tough one for the lead investigator, one of the lead investigators shared uh you know his experience through this, and you know when a case goes cold like that, it wears on the investigator as well, it wears on the family um, and then you know finally, a break in the case, but you learn a lot about the justice system uh through this podcast, um, and that's why I called it beyond a reasonable doubt because. You know, just because someone's charged and uh, there's evidence, it doesn't mean that there will ever be a conviction. Um, And uh, I think it's really interesting. And I think it was an eye-opener. The feedback has been pretty interesting on this one that uh, people didn't realize that this could, a case could go like this. So.
1: Okay, well, now I got to listen to that one too. I missed that one. You got to catch up. I know. I got to catch up. So I'm curious, though, sometimes all it takes, Nancy, is it that there is. A little bit new awareness, like a fresh pair of eyes, as they say, goes on. And all of a sudden people are talking about a case again. And so have you seen developments happen to cases that seem like they're cold? Yeah, and what I've learned, especially,
7: you know, I don't know all jurisdictions, of course, but, you know, I deal with the RCMP in Alberta and uh, Calgary Police a lot. Um, And what I've learned is that the cases don't really go cold. You know, there's always somebody kind of poking around and taking a look and I've shared a number of cases over the years where there's been new developments and charges are suddenly laid. You know, one of the, the biggest cases that's still a cold case, um, I shared in my first season of Crime Beat. It's called, uh, it was about Kelly Cook, a young babysitter that went missing. And I was a child. And this also happened near where I grew up as well. So there's been a couple of cases that, you know, happened where I grew up. And then, you know, later when I became a journalist, I ended up covering them. Um, and in that case, this one's still unsolved. And I was just actually talking to an investigator about that case this morning already. So, you know, there's always people working on these files. Um, so I think, you know, people think, oh, if charges haven't been laid, they never will be. But I think, you know, there's some dedicated officers out there who they want to see these cases solved. And they're invested in seeing these cases solved.
1: Right. I'm so, oh, so fascinating. Dancy, um, thanks so much for your time this morning.
7: Thank you for having me. I really enjoy our
1: chat. And I will definitely be catching up. That is Nancy Hicks, Senior Crime Reporter for Global News and host of the Crime Beat podcast. Now, I obviously missed an episode because I have to go back and check out that one that's called Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. She's got a two-parter. Part one has dropped today. Uh, you'll have to hear about that one too, but you can catch uh, Crime Beat wherever you find your favourite podcast.